Hey everyone, real quick, if you enjoy this show, which I hope you do, and if it's helped you in your business, which I hope it has, please think about leaving a review. Just like reviews for your furniture business, reviews for this show help it reach more people. So if you have a moment, I'd love if you could leave a review on any of the platforms that you listen on. I'd really appreciate it, and it would help me to continue bringing this show to everyone. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you have time to leave a review, I'd really appreciate it. And now, on with the show. These are my costs for a project, and then these are the costs for my business, regardless of the project. That's the voice of Colton Rossman, owner of Bearded Moose Woodworking. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now, on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Colton Rossman, owner of the Grand Rapids, Michigan-based furniture company, Bearded Moose Woodworking. The last two years have been a learning experience for Colton. Like any new business, you have ideas of what you want to do, but once the business becomes a reality, those ideas need to change with the reality of your day-to-day experiences. But Colton has been able to adapt his ideas and develop new ones, and with the help of his wife and a large network of furniture makers, he has continued to push his business forward. Follow along as we talk about building a good website, furniture delivery as a one-person shop, finding your community, and much more. Colton and I covered a lot in this episode, so let's jump right in and hear about his experience in his own words. I grew up out in the country. I grew up with a dad who was extremely hands-on, did a lot of his own building, maintenance, all of those types of things. So I grew up in that realm and really, really enjoyed it. After going to college, I took a corporate job in a city and did that for a few years. And actually what happened is my wife was pregnant, COVID hit, and I got cabin fever really, really badly because everything was locked down. And so I started to look at some areas where I could get out some energy, use my hands, get back into that, that work and started to actually just play around with like small home decor stuff, did some cutting boards, did some um, like blanket ladders, things like that, cornhole boards, really fell in love with using my hands again 
making some interesting designs. And actually for that stuff, a lot of it was figuring out how to do it more efficiently. I'm an engineer by trade, so I also have that mindset. And after doing those smaller projects, I wanted to start to do some furniture for ourselves. Decided to take on um, some coffee table project for us. And at the same time, we were looking to move back to Michigan, where we were both from originally, and get back out to the country. And everything kind of landed at the same time. So as I started my actual furniture building, we also moved across the country and business kind of got shut down for six months or so. Luckily, landing back here, our network was much wider and I started to pick up a lot of business fairly quickly getting back to Michigan. So jumped into a big dining table. I did about a 10 foot dining table a few months after we got back, which was a big project at the time. Um, and then that's continued to just roll into projects. So I'm now working on cabinetry as well, which has been a fun new endeavor, um, continuing with the furniture as well. And uh, the focus now with the business is just trying to expand and invest to get to a point where it's, it's really sustainable to maintain a full-time employee. I like that you use the word investing, investing back into the business, because that's what we're all doing. We all started with nothing. And the more we invest back into our business on the physical side and the mental side, the more our business grows. I really like to talk to people like yourself who are relatively new to owning a furniture business because you're still in that that starting line mindset. And I want to ask you about this because there are a lot of businesses out there that you can start. There are a lot of different types of companies that you can have besides owning a furniture company. What in your mind made you say, out of all the jobs I could do, why furniture and why jump into that when you you knew that there was an uphill battle there? So for me, growing up very much had an engineering type mind. Um, that's what I went to school for. It's what my career has been. But I've also really enjoyed the challenge of physically making things. A lot of times as an engineer in my career, I, I don't actually make things. A lot of it is more theory or um, planning, designing. So with the, with the furniture, you get the best of both worlds. You can come up with very interesting, unique designs. And then you get to challenge yourself to figure out how you're going to make those. It's a unique area that I don't think a lot of people get to jump into. And I'm not just talking furniture, but I'm talking that, that aspect of both the design and unique creation, but then also executing on it. When you talk to others in the industry, it's it's a very interesting mindset that not a lot of people outside of the industry experience. You talk to a lot of people that do marketing and yeah, they're creating websites, but that that physical tangible where you can run your hands across the tabletop, it's it's just a difference, a different experience at the end of the day when one that I very much appreciate. In in today's world where you wake up, you 
go on the internet. You go to work, you're on the internet. You're you're doing everything on the computer. You're doing everything digitally. I hear what you're saying about the satisfaction one gets from from building something with their hands, from starting with raw materials and building something that they or their clients can use for hopefully a long time to come. So I know that feeling and I know people listening also know that feeling. So I agree that 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 is definitely one of the things that draws people to building furniture and one of the the best parts of the industry. But there is there is hard parts in this industry and there is the the learning curve of actually building things which you know and there's the learning curve of getting clients especially as a newer business and one that just moved across the country to a new location and is starting everything fresh so what were your first moves when you said this is what i'm going to do i'm going to start a furniture company and you said that that you had roots there and you knew people and you had a circle of people that you could reach out to and word of mouth is a great way for people to start but you were not a furniture company when you left and when you came back you were so you were coming to people from a different angle what what did you do to start your company on the marketing on the reaching out to people but also on the the building your own brand and building the back end of your company to support it moving forward. Yeah. So, you know, obviously jumping onto social media is a big one. It's a, it's a free marketing platform that you can use. So started to get um, the, the portfolio out there, posting photos, posting videos, obviously. Um, and not just, I have a, I have an Instagram account that is more of the reels video type Instagram account, but trying to cross post things on Facebook that are a little bit more product based. So getting, getting that finished product shot out on Facebook, I made sure to the big change moving back was starting to share that on my personal uh, Facebook account as well. Knowing that a lot of those connections a good majority of them were here in Michigan and trying to get eyes on friends from, from back in the day that I maybe don't talk to as much, but could be a potential client. So that was a big one. The other big thing is my wife has a degree in marketing. She's a website builder and focuses on search engine optimization work. So Leveraging her skill set has been huge. So my website is professionally built by her. She manages all of the back end on that side. And the the growth from that is starting to pick up more and more. There's a lot more inquiries through the website as well. So those were kind of the two big avenues from a client gathering perspective, you know, reaching out to friends and family and saying, hey, do you guys want anything? let's work a deal. I'd love to, I'd love to build something for you to get that portfolio built. The other thing from a business side is the, the home we bought in Michigan had a smaller shop on it. So it was about a 400 square foot shop that had electrical and I moved all of my equipment in there quickly and tried to get set up. 
And it worked really well until I started to get those bigger projects. Um, as you can imagine, 400 square feet fills up pretty quick with dining tables. So this year, the decision was made for the business. Um, I added on to, to that, that shop, 1,400 square feet now. And that's been a huge unlock as well. I'm still getting settled into that space. And it, it was a risk that we took. But it's been one that I'm already seeing benefits from. I'm able to pick up a little bit more clientele because um, I have the space to work on multiple projects at the same time. Those are kind of the two big things laying the groundwork back in Michigan, back in the, the new state to try to get the business set up for both the short term, obviously getting those clients, but also the long term with the investment in the new building. Those two things you hit on, the social media and the search optimization, I want to get into those a little bit more because you said something that I don't hear a lot of people say about social media. A lot of people start their business account and they're just posting their furniture and their builds, which is is great and it's a great way to get eyes on it. But social media in general and in big capital letters goes worldwide. And, and somebody like you, who's a local business and who's only trying to work locally, that doesn't necessarily help you. You could have a giant following, but if none of it's local, then none of it's going to relate back to your actual furniture company. But you said that not only the business, but also your personal accounts, you started showcasing your furniture, which I don't think a lot of people think about because the word of mouth and the and the talking to people you know is something that you do instinctually. But to also be doing that in your digital life, that makes a lot of sense. You're reaching a lot of people in the same way word of mouth would be, but just digitally. How did that how did that work for you? Did it did it give the results you were looking for? Yeah, yeah, it did. And the the interesting thing about that is before starting this business, I did not have social media. I'm not I'm not a, the biggest fan of social media from a personal perspective. Um, and so starting starting the Instagram and Facebook um, accounts for the business, that's that was going to be the sole focus. I was I was going to have those and share the work. The decision to do the Facebook sharing on my personal side came when we came back to Michigan. And it wasn't one that was an easy decision, actually, for me, because it's like I said, I'm just not a big fan of um, social media from a personal perspective. But the goal is obviously to get the business on solid footing and grow it. And so it was one of those things that I did. And fairly quickly, actually, I had a, an, a friend from high school reach out and ask for a dining table. Um, and it was a nice little positive reinforcement that that decision was correct. And it came off of, I had posted, I had made some custom nightstands for a client and posted and shared on my personal account. And she responded within 24 hours and said, Hey, are you able to do dining tables? And that's continued, whether direct from other clients or from friends of mine commenting other people on my Facebook account. And it's actually all through my personal account now. And it's, it's a thing that's very easy to do. Facebook has that share 
button on there. You click a button, you type a few words, you post it. It doesn't take much more than five to 10 seconds to do. And I think it's something that can bring a lot of value to a lot of businesses that maybe don't, don't consider that. They think, oh, I'm already getting it on Facebook. But if you, especially when you're new, you go look at your following as a business and it can be fairly small for a long time where you may have five to 600 friends on Facebook, personal friends. They either want something or they have a friend or family member that may want something. And I think it's a network that not a lot of people consider through through digital purposes. Like you said, you talk to a lot of those people, but it's so quick and easy and it can spread so quickly. And it's a lot easier for somebody to share a picture from Facebook or from their social media than for somebody to say, oh, I know a friend who, what's their website? I can't, oh, I can't, I can't remember it. it you know, it's a lot easier when you actually put it out there. And I don't think either of us are saying flood your friends with your business cards and all all that. But if you do it in a proper way where people are interested in what you're doing, then you can see great results from it. And you are somebody who's done that. So you're speaking the truth from what you've seen. The other thing you talked about was growth with search optimization. And I know that you're not personally doing that. Your wife is doing that. And that is smart. If you have somebody who knows what they're doing, whether it's a spouse or a friend or somebody you hire, you can outsource things when appropriate. But what are your takeaways from that part of the business, the search optimization and how that's being set up on your website and how that's helping you locally in your market? The technical side of that can be very intimidating. And I am extremely fortunate that my wife does a lot of that work for me because it would not be even close to the level it's at if it was just on myself. Um, so I do think that as a as a business, that would be something at this point I would try to be outsourcing whether whether or not I knew someone that was doing it because it, it can bring so much value. I have looked around in my local area and the the small business in general, not just furniture, but small business websites and search engine optimization type work. It's it's kind of interesting to see because you can see people want to be online. They want to have that digital footprint so people can find them, but it's very difficult. You can you can tell when somebody invests heavily in that. And you really have to kind of go look for people that aren't investing heavily in it because it makes such a big difference. So there's some companies in the area that I, I know of, I've you know been there or whatever, and finding them online is surprisingly difficult when searching them. The biggest thing my wife has done for me in the past six months to a year, I would say, is picking up some of these cabinet projects is really diving more into that from a search engine perspective, because that is a an area of furniture woodworking that is is pretty big. There's a lot of people looking for custom cabinetry type work, whether that's kitchens, built-ins, um, things like that. And that's the other piece of it that 
a business owner should look at is trying to find out in your area what has a low competition for both work for projects products but also from a search engine perspective so finding something that's got low competition but a, a higher search rate and unfortunately i can't tell you i know that there are tools on on the internet that allow you to look those details up but that would be one thing that needs to be looked at pretty heavily sticking with the idea of clients because talking with you i i hear that you have a, a very good sense of that part of the business and you're you're not just building the furniture side you're also building the business side the client side you have a client portal it's a place when somebody contacts you it's where you can keep all of their information send them updates do contracts do things like that what made you decide to go in that direction rather than keep it all on email or phone calls and talk a little bit more about this client portal and how it's been helping your business. That has been a huge unlock. Absolutely. And the reason we did it is the the paperwork trail and the organization can be very difficult trying to manage both of those things. We have a young family. Um, my wife has a small business as well there's a lot going on. And so trying to keep everything organized is really important. The portal has been, it started off with the biggest thing, just intake, you know, getting details from clients that wanted a potential project and having a set set of questions that were answered every time was the biggest thing. Um, so knowing what they're looking for, do they have any specific requests around wood type or colors or sizes, handling that and then also trying to level set a budget a little bit, which I think I think everybody should try to come up with a way that they feel comfortable doing that because you don't want to have to deal with working through designs and quoting and all of these things just to have a client say, oh, that's six times more than I wanted to spend. Um, you you need to go in with a little bit of an understanding as a business owner and as a client what what you're looking for. So it started with that and it did definitely transition into managing my contracts and my invoicing and all of those things. Um, so emails and requests go into that portal. They get an automated response right away saying, thank you for reaching out. I will be in touch within 24 or 48 hours. You know, if you have any more photos or anything like that of inspiration, please send them my way. That will handle the communication back and forth. That usually gives me a pretty good idea of the type of project they're wanting to do. I work up a proposal through that system and it goes out to the client. They can sign the contract and the proposal and pay their initial invoice all, all through that system. We do the project together and then they can get an invoice through that system as well. And any communication goes through that. It, it makes it... Um, very easy to track because all of those projects are grouped together in that portal. So if a client has a dining table project and they email me, it all goes into that project folder in the software. So I don't have to go search through email to try to find, you know, when they said, Hey, I need, I need it to be a little bit smaller, a little bit bigger or anything like that. It's all tracked through there. The other really nice benefit that that software has is it actually shows me if people open my emails or if they look at the proposals. So just like every other business, I have been quote unquote ghosted from clients. 
And so I can see, hey, they opened this email and they opened this proposal and they didn't respond. So I can either email them again, say, hey, I just want to follow up if you have any questions or if it's something where I don't feel like it's going to happen at all at this point, then I can just let that go knowing, hey, at least they saw it. They saw the, the quote. And unfortunately, it's just a lost client at this time. It's, it's a system that I very much enjoy. I want to try to get it set up even a little bit more detailed with automatic emailing, asking for reviews, which I think a lot of businesses should be doing is reaching out to clients and saying, hey, I hope you like my work. I hope your experience was fantastic. Please you know, leave a review if you feel comfortable because that feeds back into that search engine optimization work that we talked about earlier. Getting those reviews is also a big piece of that. Just to save us both a lot of writing back to emails, because I know that I'm going to get a couple hundred and you probably will of people asking, what what are you using for this portal? So what what is it? And what were some of the other ones you looked at? Um, yeah, so the system's called HoneyBook, and it is one that my wife was using, um, and she referred me to it. And so I looked at that. I also looked at, I know um, a lot of people in our industry use Jobber. Um, which is one I looked at as well. And actually, I've, I've looked at Jobber again. Um, the, the system I use, HoneyBook, does integrate with QuickBooks. But sometimes that, uh, that connection isn't perfect. So it's, it's been a great system overall. I don't think I'm going to get rid of it unless there's a, there's a change that needs to happen more from the accounting side. In that client portal, you talk about sending emails back and forth, collecting payments, all of that. But you also talk about contracts and contracts are a part of the business that that's a little hard for for people to grasp because they think that they need a contract, but they're they're not always sure where to get one. They're not always sure how to write one up. They're not always sure if they need one. They think I've dealt with this person before. I I don't need a contract for this one, or I just don't feel like I need a contract in general, but you have one. So let's talk about your contracts and why you think you need one and how you went about getting one for your company. Yeah, the, the portal actually has a template of a contract for service-based businesses that I used to build off of. So it, uh, it was pretty simple to go in and edit that contract. I actually took a lot of things out of it that I felt weren't needed. So the contract is pretty simple in the aspect of it covers me. It basically states that um, you're paying for this service. This is going to be the cost. The final payment is due at delivery or before. And then it does stipulate some things about design changes. Um, so if somebody comes in and changes something after I've started working on it, I do say that I will re-quote that. That's not something that's happened to me up to this point, but it's something that I've heard stories of and wanted to protect for. The other thing is it just helps keep everybody on the same page. I don't have to worry about a client not paying at the end of a project. For most small furniture businesses, 
it's not going to happen very often, but I've heard of it enough that it scared me. And so when I saw that that portal offered a template, I immediately jumped on it. It's, it's difficult to get a contract that you feel comfortable with because you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're solely relying on a contract to make sure nothing bad happens. You want to make sure that you're giving your clients an experience that they, they love, but then you throw a contract in on that and it makes it feel a little bit arm's length of a transaction, which I, I don't necessarily, I don't love that aspect of it either. So it is, it is pretty simple. These are kind of the, the expectations of the build and the project. And if you make a large change, I'm going to requote that. It also states in there that there are, I have the freedom to make any changes during the build that I think are necessary for functionality. So if we have a design that we've agreed upon and I get into building and I feel like an aspect of the design is weak or not functional or needs a change, my contract states that I'm allowed to make that change. And there's some wording about that change. I will try to make an the, the minimal aesthetic impact as possible. So it, it's, it's a protection thing for me because I don't want to give projects to clients that functionally don't work, obviously. Um, but we have agreed upon a design. And so I'm going to try to hold true to that design as much as possible while making sure that this, this piece holds up for you for the life. That makes sense because it's in this this design world, it's in this digital world. You're sending a render, you're you're doing all that for the client and they're signing off on it, but sometimes sometimes you're building something and the materials just don't work for what you're trying to build and you need to adjust and you have that moment of this is going to be different than what the client asked for. And I'm on a tight deadline. I've already pitched them the idea. Everything's signed off on. And now I'm going to have to change it. And you're thinking in your mind, do I just do it? Because I know that's the only way the piece of furniture will work. Or do I reach out to them, explain to them, do all different design work, change it all, wait for the approval, and then still have to make it in that timeline. So that is a, a smart thing to have in your contracts and something that hopefully helps you out. It, it does. And a lot of those changes are, are very minimal where you may not even, I mean, the goal is so that the design doesn't change, but a lot of it is around um, like with dining tables and tables in general, base structure. So keeping that same shape, but maybe beefing up some legs or taking a little bit out here and there just to get that base to a point where it works really, really well. It's very structurally sound, but it continues down the same design intent. Sometimes you can design something in CAD and render it and it looks great and you feel like it's going to be strong and stable. But when you actually get it together, there's a few areas that need to be adjusted. So that's, that's really the the area where I've seen it make the biggest impact. And it definitely helps because you're working on a base, you're you're moving along, you're making great progress. You don't want to take that step back and email the client and say, hey, I need to, I need to add a small support piece here or there. It's going to be very minimal. You're not going to see it unless you're sitting on the ground next to your table. 
so I have that built in for those exact reasons. I like that you're saying they're small changes because everything in moderation. I don't think either of us are saying you put this in your contract and then you change dramatic things and then tell the client when it shows up, no, this is this is what this was in the contract. I can change whatever I want. You still have to have that client relationship. And so neither of us are saying change it dramatically without sharing with the client. But when there are small things, when there are technical things that you need to adjust to make the piece function better that probably no one will ever see, it's it's important to be able to have that that leeway to do your job to the best of your abilities. I also hear what you're saying about contracts and it becoming a little bit more of a business transaction and people are afraid of that they're afraid that the the personal touch the i don't want to say friendship but the the relationship that somebody's developing with their client is going to go out the window when you say now here's a contract that i need you to sign but <laughs> If you want to run a business that you're not always stressing about, then contracts are a good idea. And you said something that that I really loved hearing where you said, I've heard these stories before. I've heard other people go through this. I didn't go through it myself yet, but I've heard other people do it. And I'm adjusting my practices to make sure that doesn't happen to me because we all hear so many horror stories of of furniture makers and furniture businesses getting burned in some way or another and we hear it but we don't necessarily adjust our own businesses to reflect that until it happens to us and sometimes it has to happen multiple times so hearing that and then doing it proactively makes a lot of sense to me yeah, and I think I think if you start to network in this community, you have an opportunity to learn a lot of things that have not happened to you yet, but probably will. Um, this podcast is in my queue. I very much enjoy listening to it. And that's actually something that I picked up from this podcast from a previous guest. Um, and then just just talking to other furniture makers through social media mostly. Um there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from others and you don't have to take everything away from everybody else. Everybody has a different way of doing things, but you start to see a theme with furniture businesses, you know, making sure you have a contract to protect yourself and to protect the client, you know, those types of things. How, how do people handle the intake process? How do people manage their payment structures? All of those things are networking opportunities because you can start those conversations with, with your peers in the industry, meet them, you know, actually strike up a conversation with others and then learn how, you know, others do it and you can mold it to your own practices. In the bigger timeline of the furniture business, social media is this new concept. For so long in the furniture business, it was you make something in your own shop 
and then you deliver it to the client. And maybe a client would stop by and see the piece while it's being made. But usually it's that first interaction where you decide with the client what they want to have built. And then you build it in your shop without any client interaction. And then and then the client sees it, the finished product. But now with social media, people are building things and almost in real time, their clients are getting to look at it and getting to comment on it and getting to see the, the yes, the great progress that's being made, but also they get to see sort of behind the curtains. They get to see the, the guts of the furniture process. And that can sometimes be hard because they see it and they don't have the vision and they think this isn't what I want or they have second thoughts or they see something else that you're building and decide to add that in. So with all that taken into account, and I know you have the contracts talking about change orders, but there is that personal relationship you have with the clients. What do you think about when you're you're posting a client's in-progress work and how are you dealing with that mentally to say, okay, I'm putting it out there before it's finished? And also how are you dealing with clients responding in real time while you're building? A lot of the early process, I will post the day of. So milling, breaking down lumber, lumber selection, things like that. I will do the day of because it's pretty innocuous to a client, right? They're not going to understand where that's going a lot of the time. The, the progress photos or progress videos towards the end where it's starting to come together more as a, as a final product, I will try to hold those back until delivery or after delivery. I think that there's that space where you're starting to see the furniture pieces come together that a client can either one, get very, very excited because they it, it matches the vision that they have in their head or they can start to become concerned because what they're seeing doesn't necessarily match what they want in the end. Now it's going to get to that point, but we both know that there are times where you look at something and you think, wow, this, this does not even look close to the end design, but it's going to get there. So I do try to wait a little bit with the final product videos towards delivery or after delivery, but sometimes it's hard, you know, social media is a game of being consistent and sometimes that photo is what you have to post. I don't worry too much about the client interaction on that stuff. I've been pretty fortunate. Most of my clients have been extremely supportive and um, excited about their projects. Social media is a thing that you have to be careful with in general. Um, anybody can come comment on stuff. And so I actually, I worry less about the clients and I worry more about just people in general coming on and, and commenting things that, uh, that aren't helpful for the business or for the social media account or anything like that. And luckily you can delete those comments if it's inappropriate or you don't feel like it, uh, reflects the business values that you want to show to the world. How do you balance the business side of your social media 
and also the personal inside look of you and showcasing who you are because just all business doesn't necessarily get the likes and the follows and just all personal and just all inside look into who you are doesn't necessarily bring the business, doesn't necessarily bring the money that comes with people buying furniture. How are you balancing those two in your daily posts? So I would say 95% of it is business related posts, but it's it can be, you know, uh, progress video, progress photos, finished portfolio pieces, shop, you know, shop work. Um, so like I said, I did just build a shop. I'm still building it out inside because I'm trying to do client work while getting set up in that new space. So most of it is that. On my story side, I do talk a little bit more about my personal life just because that's that's a... I guess a smaller group that's almost exclusively followers. So those are people that you interact with somewhat frequently already. I do post a little bit about my personal life. So my wife and I are expecting another child next spring. And so like I posted a reel announcing that to my followers, I did try to tie that in with woodworking. And so there's some of those things. So like larger life events will get posted on my business accounts because it does impact the business in a way, right? So next spring, when that baby comes, I am intentionally trying not to take clients in that window to, to help kind of get everybody settled. So that was, that's kind of my approach is if it's a large life event that's going to impact the business, then it, it may deserve an actual feed post, if you will. If it's smaller stuff day to day, it may get talked about in stories, but for the most part, the business account is is for the business. We could talk a lot more about social media, but I want to get back to to the nuts and bolts of the business. And, and what people have the most questions about is pricing and pricing out their furniture and how other companies do it. So looking under the hood a little bit, what is your pricing look like? How are you pricing out pieces? And how have you seen that that develop from when you were building a dining room table for your high school friend to now having a bigger shop and having a bigger family and needing to make more money in this business? Yeah, I started off like a lot of people may have with that three times material plus 10% rule. Um, it's really quick and easy when you're doing smaller projects. Um, and it's it's not a bad rule of thumb, I would say, for your first few projects to kind of get your feet underneath you. That moved into, I now have a, a quoting spreadsheet that continues to be added to. So I take into account materials. A lot of times I will do a rough sketch to try to get the the, the volume of material I need for a project. I will put that in the calculator. I actually have some, some formulas in there based around the project and the processes that happen. So like it auto calculates based on how much material 
I'm using for a project, roughly how much time I will spend milling, gluing, designing or dimensioning the type of finish process that happens. It will auto-populate roughly how much time I should expect to do that finish process. So it it's pretty holistic from a project side. Um, it gets me pretty close. I have to put in some some manual hours expected for a project, but it, it, it's a nice gut check that's very fast to get me to an hour estimation. The other things that are included on there are other material costs, delivery costs. So if I'm driving an extended amount, I do have a delivery fee that I build into the project because I think that that's valuable time. And with fuel prices where they are right now, that's something you have to consider as a business. And then I have overhead costs with the new business, machinery, you know, software packages that I use for the business. All of those things, I try to get into an overhead cost based on how much time a project is going to take me. It, it changes every time I quote a project because as you're well aware, you always are learning things that come up. The other thing that I do have on that spreadsheet that I don't use for every project, but it does come up every once in a while is a specific tool purchase that may be needed for a project. And that only comes up when a client is asking for a very specific like design or process or something like that, you know, something that's specific to that project that I don't own, that I probably won't be using moving forward that often. And so I do try to account for that, at least in that model. So I understand what that does to the cost of the piece. Um, so I had a client reach out a few months ago. I ended up not working with them but they were asking for a very specific design that would have required me to veneer a dining tabletop. And so I did some research on veneering bags and componentry and that whole process. And so I, I put that in there. That's not a process that I do very much. And so I, I included that cost in the project with the understanding that it probably priced me out of it, but I needed to be priced out of it if, if I was going to do it. You know, I needed, I needed that cost included if I was going to do that project. It didn't make sense for my business not including it. So all of those things get dumped into the model. It auto-calculates what the, the price should be, if you will. And then I always try to take a step back and look at that price and say, okay, does, is that realistic for what I'm quoting to a client? And I will adjust from there a little bit one way or the other. The other thing I do include a profit in there. So I'm putting my labor in there, but I'm also putting a profit percentage on top of all of that. Um, that helps protect me a little bit in case I miss wildly on the labor costs, but also you should be, you should be as a business, you should be adding a profit on top of your labor. Approach it as if you have to pay somebody else to do that time. And then you still need to make money on top of it. So that's a very long-winded answer for the pricing, but I think it's really important for people to sit down and at least write out your costs going out um, and kind of split that. Say, these are my costs for a project, and then these are the costs for my business, regardless of the project, um, and try to account for both of those things.
you can be as long-winded as you want. People love hearing about pricing and love hearing about how other people do it because it it helps them. It helps them either get a new grasp on how they should do their own pricing or understand how other people are pricing their things to understand more about the industry. So talking about pricing, just like talking about social media, is a is a big topic that people don't have a problem listening to. I do want to talk about, though, there's also the aspect of a furniture business that is physical based and and that is the building. But there's also things like delivery. And you said that you're looking to hire somebody else. But right now you are a one person shop. And so let's talk about delivering bigger projects. Stuff that's that's smaller, a coffee table, an end table, you can put in your vehicle and you can drive and you can bring it into somebody's house. But something like a, a dining room table, you can talk with the client, you can get approval, you can draw it up, you can get deposit, you can build it, and then it's sitting in your shop and you're saying, this is a big piece of furniture. I can't carry this myself. I can't deliver this myself what what's the next step for you there with delivery when actually becomes a physical reality where it's not just an idea of furniture anymore it's a piece of furniture that is in the world and needs to go somewhere yeah that's that's still a challenge for me so i have rented u-haul trailers before um, i've borrowed trailers from friends and family a trailer is on the list for business investments, hopefully somewhat soon. I think talk, talk to your client and I talk, I try to talk to the client and say, hey, are, are you going to be able to assist with getting this in? Are there any concerns with moving this into your, your home or into the location? A lot of people will help move those things. If not, be prepared to call somebody and offer some extra cash to a friend or family and say, Hey, I need, I need some assistance getting this into position. The delivery aspect I like to do myself because you can control it a little bit. And luckily most of, or actually all my clients for that type of stuff have been local. I don't like the idea of farming that out to the client themselves. If they want to come pick it up, especially with those larger pieces, I just don't think it's something that you should offer as a business. And I don't like the idea of having to try to coordinate with a delivery service in the local area. So I have a lot of moving blankets. I've used foam under moving blankets to protect things. And then it's just a matter of making sure that you're going very carefully with those that process. I also have some things in my shop that I've built to assist with moving things in the shop to get to vehicles. A lot of the items in the shop are on carts. And so when you get like tabletops and things like that, they can be wheeled around and wheeled directly up to a, uh, a vehicle so that you can easily move it into position. So working as a one-man shop, I have asked my wife more than, more than she would like to help assist with moving things. But that's kind of out the window as she is pregnant right now. So she can't help me lift a 10-foot dining table. So you have to get a little bit unique with how you move those things around your shop and into vehicles, and you have to be prepared to call for backup. Um, the last thing you want to do is drop that big 10-foot dining table top that you've spent 
you know, hours and hours and hours um, and have it be damaged. Agreed. You don't you don't want to damage the furniture. That is the maybe not number one rule, but that is that is in the top list of uh, of things you don't want to do in your furniture business. There are people who want to start furniture businesses. They heard what you said in the beginning about the satisfaction you get from actually building a physical thing. And they they want to do that. And there's also people who have been doing this for a while and understand that satisfaction, but aren't having that same success in their business. From your perspective, basing it on your furniture company and advice that you've gotten from other people, what's some advice that you could share to people listening about running a company and and the steps that it takes to be successful? I personally believe it starts with the client always. Um, And obviously, if you're not getting clients, you're not making money, your business can't survive. But if you're if you're not getting repeat clients, I think that that's a really good indication that there's something going on that you need to address. And so I think the focus should always be giving the client the best possible experience, um, both through the process and then also with the piece. I try to make sure that I'm staying in communication with them. I'm doing exactly what they're asking for with the piece or at least explaining to them why I don't think that that's a good choice. Um, and then delivering on time. I, I think it starts there. And then getting those clients is obviously the, the biggest piece. You know, getting clients into the queue is required to make them happy. I am fortunate. I have a brother-in-law that's a, um, a contractor. He has sent clients my way. I think reaching out to those types of people make make a big impact in your business. So reach out to contractors that are doing remodels because when somebody gets a brand new kitchen, a lot of times they want a fresh new dining table to go with it. Um, Reach out to interior designers. Interior designers are great, great contacts to have. Talk to home builders, you know, talk to, talk to people that are in industries that connect to furniture and get those clients and then make sure you're doing everything that you can to make that client happy. It's not an easy thing by any, by any means to have a business furniture or otherwise and survive. I think you need to look at where does the money come in and how does, how do you keep that going? And for furniture builders, it's projects and clients. And so it's, it's tough. Sometimes you take projects that you don't want to do, but if it's bringing money in or or if it's going to bring in a client that you feel could be a fruitful relationship for a long time, you have to you have to take a step back sometimes and say, hey, I really don't want to build this um, floating shelf project for this client because it's not the type of work I like to do. But they live in an area that is upper middle class. You know, so I think I can get in there. They are doing a big remodel project. So I'm going to do these floating shelves for them. And then I hope I get a dining table or a coffee table or whatever else it may be. You, you can't just look at a client and a project as just that specific project and client. You have to look at it holistically if you're going to survive as a business. You are right. It's not an easy business. And if you talk to anybody who has a furniture business, you will hear that. But 
like you've also said, it does have its satisfaction and and hearing from people like you and telling your story and telling how you're doing it and navigating the the tough waters makes things easier for people out there. So I do want to thank you for your time and appreciate you sharing your story. And I wish you nothing but success moving forward in your business. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, if anybody has any questions, they can always reach out to me. Um, and I'm more than willing to share my experience with anybody. I, uh, I want to see the community grow because I think it's, I think it's a really fantastic community. And I think this sort of work can bring a lot of joy to a lot of people, both, both the builders and the clients. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.